A Pinnacle Airlines Bombardier CRJ-200 is getting moved to Minneapolis when it calls an emergency. What caused this very avoidable accident? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Hi. Apparently it's a thing we're doing now, is saying hello at the beginning of every episode. I have done that every episode. Go back. You will find that I have done that every episode. Uh, welcome to our new patron, Janice. Janice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank hello. you so much for becoming a patron. We highly appreciate it. Janice? Janice? One of those two. I hope we, s- we said it right one time, so. Yes. <laughs> Sorry if we said it wrong the other time. Check out the newsletter. You can subscribe on the website. Please submit your listener stories. Also, thanks to David, because you're the only reason that keeps going and you keep sending <laughs> the stories. That's not entirely true. We get stories from other people, but yes, he... From everyone this, else. For this month, the majority of the ones... Yes, he him. is definitely a heavy participator. Yes. Please, please. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, remember, for January, the listener theme is first aviation experiences first flights first trips everything first, first time jumping out of an airplane david david <laughs> or something like that or yeah anything like that also if you want to tell us an aviation story that doesn't have to do with the theme that's fine too we enjoy those as well we just like stories so remember you can go to the website and submit it's the form is also currently all over the social socials. needs because i freaked out last week and went please submit stories <laughs> so i think that's all the housekeeping we have for now so what are we covering today nick uh today in particular we are covering miranda getting extremely mad <laughs> welcome to the hashtag miranda gets mad at history episode this is your warning now that this is more than likely the angriest Miranda will ever be. Eh, I don't know. In an episode, the U.S. Bengal was pretty bad. That one was pretty bad. This one's might be more egregious, yeah. arguably. You've been warned. I I don't. To be fair, I don't know what's happening yet. So we'll see. <laughs> it's. Well, let me put it this way: the outcome, I guess, could have been so much worse. It was still pretty bad. Today we are covering Pinnacle Airlines Flight thirty-seven oh one. It should be known that their call sign is flagship. So when you see the title for this episode, it'll be FLG. That's because their call sign is flagship 3701. Yes, this was operating for Northwest Airlink for Northwest Airlines. It's their regional carrier, one of their regional carriers. Thank you to Akel and Liam for recommending this episode. Yes, we had two recommendations for this one. Meaning they just really wanted Miranda to get mad. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) Because this is going to take you for a serious ride. This accident took place on October 14th of 2004. It was a Bombardier CRJ-200, or Canada Regional Jet 200. This was Bombardier-owned Canadair at the time of this crash, so it was known as the Bombardier CRJ-200. With the tail number November 83. Nine, six, Alpha. The flight we are talking about today was from Little Rock, Arkansas to Minneapolis, St. Paul in Minnesota. The captain for our flight today is Jesse Rhodes. He was 31 years old. He had 6,900 hours total. 
of which 973 hours were on the CRJ-200. The first officer for our flight is Peter Caesars. He was 23 years old. He had 761 hours total, of which 222 hours were on the type. So this is back when you didn't need to have the 1,500 hours? Yes, so he was one. Of, he is one of the lowest hour pilots we will have talked about on the podcast so far. Not quite the lowest, because I think what's-her-name on the U.S. Banglo have had less. I don't recall. I think she only had like 150-something hours. Yeah, I think that sounds She will probably be the lowest we will ever talk about. Yeah, but that was in a different country, so. Yes, different requirements, different different places. And yes, this was before the 1,500-hour requirement, so he had only 761 hours total. And he was pretty young, too, 23. He was younger than any of us. Yeah, that's weird. Oh, oh. (laughs) That's weird. That's vaguely upsetting. Yes. How old do you have to be to be a commercial pilot? There's actually not really a requirement. Oh, boy. As long as you meet the hour requirements and all the certifications and stuff. Um, But generally, to get into a lot of the airlines, they also like to see a degree. So generally, you need to be at least old enough to have that. So about 2021. Yeah, generally. Our flight today has zero passengers and two crew. It's a 50-seat jet. Why? Well, this was a repositioning flight. Ah. So they were repositioning the airplane to where it was needed. It needed to go somewhere. where it ended up. Yeah. Right. Okay. These are pretty rare nowadays. Yes. Generally, the airlines are very, very good at just moving airplanes around within their network with passengers on board. They don't have to reposition airplanes almost ever. That's not totally untold, but it is pretty rare. Usually, it's only to and from storage that they have to move empty airplanes or for or for ferrying for maintenance problems it's more economic that way because then you don't have to waste gas on an empty airplane yeah of course the flight was supposed to take place earlier in the day with a different crew but a maintenance error message had displayed in the cockpit prior to their takeoff with that crew so they returned to the gate and maintenance had to look at the airplane and they corrected the issue but the airplane was still needed the next morning early in minneapolis So the dispatch for the airline organized a late-night repositioning flight with the accident crew. So different crew than originally was going to take the airplane. The flight we were talking about departed Little Rock at about 9.21 p.m. The flight plan had the flight cruising at 33,000 feet and had a smooth, easy ride all the way to Minneapolis if everything went as planned. That said, five seconds after liftoff, the airplane was was only 190 feet above the runway when one of the flight crew moved the control column back to 8 degrees, so the control column back 8 degrees, in the nose-up direction, pulling the actual nose of the airplane up to 22 degrees, which typical climb-out can be between 10 and 20 degrees, but this is pretty heavy. This resulted in a 1.8G vertical acceleration, so almost 2Gs of vertical acceleration. This is not normal for an airliner. As the airplane rose to a 3,000 foot per minute climb rate, also pretty high, not normal. Immediately as this happened, the stick shaker and the stick pusher both activated simultaneously. Because you're going up, you're losing lift, it's going to stall, so the stick shaker activates to let you know, hey, you're going to stall, don't do that, push it forward. Right, and physics too with airplanes, especially airliners, this happens where if, so there's a normal rate of acceleration upward. So 
you can pull the nose back at a certain rate and generally maintain that climb. But if you pull back too quickly, you lose lift over the wing very, very quickly. And even though you, you don't lose the, the actual airspeed over the ground, you go into what's called an accelerated stall because you have accelerated the airplane in a certain direction too quickly for air to maintain its path over the wing. So you lose lift, so the airplane instantly goes into a stall, even though you're moving over the ground at the speed you might need. So that's what happened in this case. They pulled back so quickly that while they were at a low enough airspeed and a low enough altitude, the airplane was like, hey, you lost lift, and it pushed the nose over for them. The stick shaker put out full forward input on the control column, reducing the rate of climb and causing a vertical acceleration of negative 0.6 Gs. So it brought the nose back down relatively quick. Not wicked fast, but going from basically 2 Gs up to negative 0.6 down is is pretty heavy. The plane recovered, then the flight continued normally. At 9.25 p.m. and 55 seconds, as the plane climbed through 14,000 feet, the flight crew engaged the autopilot. At that time, the flight crew then proceeded to switch seats in the cockpit. This is also not normal. At 9.27 p.m. and 15 seconds, as the plane was climbing through 15,000 feet, the flight crew disengaged the autopilot again. Normally, most flights, most airline flights, would be on autopilot pretty much as soon as you get off the ground. Well, and the, you stay on autopilot and unless you have an emergency. Yeah, I mean, generally. there's no reason to take it off of autopilot. Right. Two seconds later, the flight crew pulled back on the control column again, increasing the nose-up attitude of the airplane to 17 degrees, pulling about 2.3 Gs, and increasing their rate of climb to about 10,000 feet per minute. What are they doing? Normal climb rate's about 1,500 feet per minute. Also, why? Are, do you need to get to a higher altitude? Why are you doing it so fast? Why did this happen twice? I don't get it. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> This is extremely out of training and out of regulations and protocols. At 9.28 p.m. and 40 seconds, the flight crew made several small inputs to the rudder left and right, which when you're at a higher altitude and a higher speed, these small inputs can have a pretty heavy impact. So even though they did these very, very small inputs, we're talking 0.4 degrees to the left, and I think it went like... Oh no, it went more four, than that. It went 4 degrees to the right and 0. 0.4 to the left, I think is what it was, or 0. 0.6 to the okay, left. So this constant little left and right. So the airplane suddenly becomes very imbalanced. These these little inputs, even though that doesn't sound like much, when they're moving at the speed they are, this is enough to, I mean, like, throw the airplane through a roller coaster. I mean, if you think about it, when you're going 90 miles an hour in a car, mm -hmm. the littlest movement of On the, steering, the wheel. steering wheel is going to cause a lot more than it would at 40 miles per hour. Yeah, so imagine doing this at five times the speed. In a giant airplane. Yes. Yeah. It's basically the same thing, but much worse. Anyways, they went back to a stabilized flight, and four minutes later, the airplane was climbing through 24,600 feet when the flight crew did another pitch-up maneuver, pulling the nose up to about 10 degrees, increasing the climb rate to around 9,000 feet per minute and pulling 1.87 Gs. What? I'm 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 so confused. I don't understand. Oh, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. I don't understand. They're going to stall the airplane doing this. Just you wait. At 9.35 p.m. and 36 seconds, the captain requested a climb to 41,000 feet from air traffic control. Remember that their cruise altitude was 33. They're not even at 33 yet, are they? No. So why change it when you haven't even gotten to your flight level yet? 41,000 feet was the max operating altitude for the CRJ-200. And 
with it. I'll get more into it. Just... Okay, I'll leave that be then. Are they just like messing around? Like, let's see what we can do. The airplane <laughs> is empty. Let's just be idiots. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not saying anything yet either. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, this is what it feels like to me. It's like this. these pilots are like, well, there's no one on board. Let's see what this baby can do. You know what I mean? You are not a test pilot. Don't f- mess around with that shit. I'm going to continue my story, and you'll find out. <laughs> At 9.36 p.m. and 13 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to the 41,000 feet that was requested. At 9.44 p.m. and 44 seconds, so a handful of minutes later, the flight crew were discussing the climb to 41,000 feet, and four minutes after that, the first officer stated, quote, Man, we can do it. Forewon it. At 9.51 p.m. and 51 seconds, the first officer stated, quote, there's 4-1. Oh, my, man. Hey, dude. He sounds like a, a frat boy. I mean, he's 23 years old. Yeah. Like, yo, look what we can do, man. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm imagining, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's exactly like 23-year-old male is like what that sounds like. At 9.52 and 8 seconds, so a handful of seconds later, the first officer stated, this is great. As the airplane had climbed from 37,000 feet to 41,000 feet, the airspeed had been decreasing from 203 knots to 163 knots as the airplane leveled off. Now, mind you, this is all indicated, and that's really slow indicated airspeed. Because even though that's slow as it is, indicated airspeed is, it'll be faster over the ground, but when you're up that high, that means there's only 163 That's what's going over knots. the wing. There's only 163 knots going over the wing, which is typically an approach speed for most airplanes. Yeah, you're, they're going to stall the airplane. We'll get there. At 9.52 p.m. and 22 seconds, the captain asked the first officer if he wanted anything to drink. The first officer said that he wanted a soda. The captain then left his seat, retrieved the drinks, and returned. Who's flying the airplane, by the way? It's on autopilot at this point. Sort of. Who, but who's the pilot flying? Good question. Um, I'm not sure. I realize they switch seats too, they, so that doesn't help either. They actually really don't make this clear because it seems to switch back and forth several times. Oh, God. I'm going to have aneurysm. <laughs> At 9.53 p.m. and 28 seconds, the captain stated, quote, Look how high we are, end quote. 14 seconds later, an air traffic controller at the Kansas City Air Route Traffic Control Center asked the flight if they were flying in a CRJ-200. The captain confirmed, and the air traffic controller responded, I've never seen you guys up at 4-1 there. The captain replied, We don't have any passengers on board, so we decided to have a little fun and come up, come on up here. A few seconds later, he added, This is actually our service ceiling. So he explained to them, This is as high as the CRJ-200 can go. A few seconds later, the captain told the first officer, quote, We're losing here. We're going to be coming down in a second here. End quote. Three seconds later, he stated, this thing isn't going to hold altitude, is it? First officer responded, It can't, man. We cruised up here, but it won't stay. A few seconds later, the captain responded, Yeah, that's funny. We got up here. It won't stay up here. At 9.54 and 32 seconds, the captain told the air traffic controller, quote, It looks like we're not even going to be able to stay up here. Look for maybe 390 or 37, so heading down to 39,000 feet or... 37,000 feet. Well, they're they're losing airspeed, so they need to do something. They're losing they're... altitude because of that. A second later, the stick shaker activated as the airspeed had decreased to 150 knots with a 7.5 degree airplane nose up attitude just to maintain 
the altitude. So the airplane on its own, if you tell it to stay at an altitude, but it's losing airspeed, will continue to nose up in order to try to maintain oh, that God. altitude. So at 150 knots, it had to be 7.5 degrees nose up in order to maintain altitude. And it wasn't even doing that. And it's going so slow at this point that it's going to stall. Yes. Because the nose is sticking up, trying to stay at 41,000 feet. Yes. And it was already going slow to begin with. Yep. So there's even less lift over the wings. Yep. Great. Awesome. Amazing. The stick shaker and stick pusher activated three separate times in nine seconds. On the second activation of the stick pusher, the fan speed and the fuel flow for both engines began decreasing. The airplane was 12 degrees nose up on the second stick pusher activation. The third stick pusher activation changed the attitude of the airplane from 7 degrees nose up to 20 degrees nose down. (laughs) The nose then began increasing angle of attack upward again. And at 9.54 p.m. and 57 seconds, the stick shaker and stick pusher activated again. Despite the stick pusher, the max angle of attack increased to beyond 27 degrees. So this is a little different than thinking of the airplane as nose up at 27 degrees. This is literally the angle at which it's attacking its direction. So if it's attacking a straight line, if it were attacking straight and level, then it's 27 degrees nose up from the direction of its actual flight. But if it's descending... Since the airplane was descending a little, the nose was actually only up... It was actually all the way up at 29 degrees because it was increasing altitude ever so slightly. Oh, so it's climbing. It was climbing barely, but it had to be 27 degrees up and it was only getting two degrees of actual climb because it was at 29 degrees. So its angle of attack was 27 degrees, which is also just very high for any maneuver in an airliner. Also, why is the nose still up? Why? You need to go down anyway. Why is the nose still up? She'll have that answer later. I, I do. Because there is a reason. There is a reason why this is happening. At that time, the airplane entered an aerodynamic stall. Yeah. So this is not an accelerated stall. This literally means the airplane's just moving too slow. Too There's slow. no air over the wings. Not enough to keep the airplane airborne. A left wing roll then occurred, increasing all the way to 82 degrees left wing uh, down. Oh no! So nearly 90 degrees left wing over. If they're not careful, it's going to invert. Right. So this yeah. is pretty typical with a lot of airplanes. Typically, when you put the airplane into a stall, one of the wings is going to stall before the other one does. And if you're not careful, that will cause that side of the airplane to dip down first. It'll roll over. You might recall this happened with Colgan Air in episode four. Yes. Taking it back. Yes. This is called a <laughs> stall spin. It's where the airplane loses its stability in an aerodynamic stall, and so it stalls over to one side, which can cause the airplane to actually spin downward. Spiral downward. And the airplane went to 82... So it went to 82 degrees, left wing down. The nose also pitched over to 32 degrees nose down. At that moment, both engines flamed out. Yeah. I would expect that to happen. Yeah. For those of you that don't understand what that means, we'll get to that later. Yep. At 9.55 p.m. and 6 seconds, the captain reported to the air traffic controller, quote, Declaring emergency, stand by, end quote. That's all he said. The next 14 seconds were full of the flight crew performing many manual inputs to recover the airplane, to the flight controls, that is, finally stabilizing around 34,000 feet. They lost 6,000 feet. In 14 seconds? Mm-hmm. During the drop, 
both engines lost all power. Oh, good. At 9.55 p.m. and 14 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend and maintain 24,000 feet, so down another 10,000 feet. Five seconds later, the captain acknowledged the instructions, and at 9.55 p.m. and 20 seconds, AC power was lost on the airplane with both of the generators shut down. Oh, no. They still had some power, but AC power wasn't operating. At 9.55 p.m. and 31 seconds, one pilot said to the other, We don't have any engines. Ten seconds later, the captain stated, Double engine failure. At 9.56 p.m. and 42 seconds, the flight crew began performing the double engine failure checklist, which required the plane to be at 240 knots. They weren't doing that. The checklist suggested a windmill restart procedure that would require the airplane to be between 13,000 and 21,000 feet and 300 knots. Again, they weren't even doing 240 knots yet. Also, they weren't down between 13 and 21. No. The checklist also indicated that in order to increase speed from 240 knots to 300 knots, a drop of 5,000 feet should be expected with the airplane. So, in other words, they were going to have to, since they don't have engines, they don't have any form of manual thrust in the airplane other than to pitch the nose over, point it toward the ground, and increase speed. At 9.59 p.m. and 16 seconds, the flight crew started the APU, or the auxiliary power unit, to restore the AC power to the plane. This worked, of course, getting power back. So the auxiliary power unit is literally the third little engine all the way in the back of the airplane that just operates Generates electric power. power. Yeah. Yep, it runs at minimal RPM, and that's its entire job. At that time, they were at 29,200 feet and at 178 knots, so still not going very quickly. At 10 p.m. and 38 seconds, the captain told the first officer to increase the airspeed to 300 knots. He was still following the checklist. <laughs> He was, okay. He was following the checklist, so he was telling the first officer what to do. He was telling him to basically pitch the nose so that the airplane would increase speed to that 300 knots required. So, so I guess the first officer is the pilot flying? Yeah, I was just going to say In that. this case, yes, but later, no. What? <laughs> yep. Stay. Stay in your tasks, people. There's no switching here. Unless there's bad CRM, which there's already bad CRM, oh. so that's great. We'll get to that. Uh. The first officer acknowledged his instructions and put the airplane into a shallow dive. 25 seconds later, the airspeed was up to 200 knots, not 300, before the airplane leveled off. So he wasn't doing much. About one minute later, the captain again instructed the first officer to increase the airspeed to 300 knots. The first officer acknowledged the instructions again, and once again pitched the airplane down for speed. This time, the airplane leveled off at 236 knots. What about 300? What is he not getting? The max airspeed that they achieved during the attempts to restart the engine was the 236 knots, by the way. And it was only that briefly. Briefly, briefly. This was too slow for any of the procedures they were trying to run. The speed gradually fell back to 200 knots over the following 22 seconds. Meanwhile, the captain was attempting to complete the windmill engine start procedure anyway, not closely watching the airspeed at all. So he had... No idea that he still hadn't pitched for 300 knots. At 10.01 p.m. and 51 seconds, the captain stated, quote, We're not getting any N2 at all. We're going to have to go to 13,000. We're going to use the APU bleed air procedure. So the N2 r relates to the actual spool of the engine, and it just wasn't doing that. Yeah, I was going to ask. It actually came up in, in my research for my Miranda episode for next month, yes. and I, I have no idea what that means. So N1 and N2 have different variables but they relate to how the engine's actually operating and they're the actual indications that 
uh, pilots have in the cockpit that the engine is on and operating and mm-hmm. at what speed. So N2 is the core of the engine spin. Yes, so it's the spin inside, the literally the center of the the engine. So all the way back deep in the engine. So is this the only way for them to restart the engine? So there were so, the two ways. So specifically, they were trying to do the windmill procedure because they were between they were trying to be between 13 and 21. This wasn't working, so the next procedure they were going to go to was an APU bleed air start. which it's literally is, to kickstart it with the APU. Kickstart it with the APU, which is actually pretty typical. It's basically what they do on the ground when they start the engines. They were trying to do that, but in order to do that, they'd have to be below 13,000 feet. Because you need oxygen. You need oxygen in order to make the engine fire. Mm. The captain then resumed the double engine failure checklist, this time referring to the APU bleed air restart procedure, which called for the airplane to be between 170 and 190 knots and below the 13,000 feet. So much slower, more similar to what they were doing, but down at 13,000 feet. At 10.03 p.m. and 9 seconds, the air traffic controller inquired about the nature of the emergency, since they hadn't said anything more than that they had declared one. The captain replied, We had an engine failure up there, so we're going to descend down now to start our other engine. Get to that later. The air traffic controller responded, quote, Understood, controlled flight on a single engine right now, end quote. During the, follow- the following several minutes, four attempts were made to restart the engines using the APU, but the engines never started. At 10.06 p.m. and 40 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the flight crew if they wished to land. The captain replied, quote, just stand by right now. We're going to start this other engine and see if everything's okay, end quote. At 10.06 p.m. and 54 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight crew that KJEF, or Jefferson City Memorial Airport in Jefferson City, Missouri, was up ahead, and the captain acknowledged this, so he knew there was an airport up ahead of them. At 10.08 p.m. and 17 seconds, the captain stated, Switch, intending that they switch responsibilities. At 10.09, yeah. Uh... At 10.09 p.m. in two seconds, the captain told the first officer to inform the air traffic controller that they needed to go direct to an airport. Neither engines started right now. That's what he was telling the first officer. The first officer made the call to the air traffic controller, informing them of the dual engine failure for the first time. This was about 15 minutes after the engines failed, as the airplane was now descending through 9,500 feet. So they waited so long to say yeah both of our engines aren't working Mm -hmm. just so y'all know the air traffic controller asked if they wanted to go direct to jef the captain told the first officer any airport and closest airport first officer replied to the air traffic controller quote closest airport we're descending 1500 feet per minute we have 9500 feet left the air traffic controller proceeded to provide all info for the airport and the ils approach for the flight into runway 30 at jefferson at 10.12 p.m. and 24 seconds, the first officer asked the air traffic controller where to look for the airport. They couldn't find it. The air traffic controller provided position, distance, and heading info for Jefferson. One minute later, the air traffic controller provided more info on the airport. A few seconds later, the captain asked the first officer if they were aligned with the runway, because they still didn't see it. first officer told the air traffic controller that they didn't have the airport or runway in sight. The air traffic controller provided more directional info. first officer then told the air traffic controller that he thought that they had the approach end of the runway in sight, finally. This was the last time that the flight communicated with air traffic control. At 10.14 p.m. in two seconds, the first officer told the captain that he had the runway in sight. The captain questioned the first officer on the location, then stated, we're not going to make this, at 10.14 p.m. in 17 seconds. 21 seconds later, the captain asked, is there a road? 
We're not going to make this runway. The airplane then turned left toward a straight and lit portion of highway. At 10.14 p.m. and 45 seconds, the captain stated, Let's keep the gear up. I don't want to go into any houses, or I don't want to go into houses here. 10.14 p.m. and 54 seconds, the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System alerted too low gear, too low terrain, and pull up consecutively. 10.15 p.m. and 3 seconds, so a few seconds later, the captain stated, We're going to hit houses. Three seconds later, the airplane impacted. It struck a tree and a 40-degree left-wing-down attitude. It proceeded to roll nearly inverted before impacting the ground nose-first. The airplane struck trees, a garage, six backyards, items in the backyards, and a property line fence that were all damaged by the airplane as it impacted the ground, broke apart violently, and slid to a stop. A post-crash fire ensued that caused heat damage to several of the nearby houses. Both pilots perished in the crash. Nobody on the ground was injured, though. That was lucky. That was pretty lucky. That was a wild ride. That's the craziness that is this just unbelievably weird thing. I'm, like, concerned about what was going through their minds, (sighs) because... This wasn't that long ago. 2004. A while ago. 16 years ago. I mean... Considering, like, yes, it's not like super duper long ago. No, like if this happened in 1980, okay, I get it. You know, whatever. <laughs> I still don't get it, but yeah, sure. 2004, really, really, okay. Yep. It's like they're taking the f- plane on a joyride. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so this investigation was performed by the NTSB, who were able to recover both black boxes and have them sent to the NTSB labs in Washington D.C. for analysis. Both were modern, solid-state drives and were digitally recorded, making retrieval and analysis a breeze. That's nice. We don't hear that very often. I know. (laughs) (laughs) The CVR turned out to be a crucial tool for hearing the downfall of what happened in the cockpit. Now, you might question why they wanted to fly up to 41,000 feet. As I did. Mostly what flies up there are business jets to stay out of the way of commercial aircraft. Mm Mm-hmm. It was also the maximum operating altitude for the CRJ. When interviewed, other pilots at Pinnacle Airlines said that they were curious about what it would be like to fly the plane that high, and that the airline had a quote-unquote flight level 410 club. Oh, no. So there's one motive. Mm -hmm. I want to be part of the club. Yeah, that's a great idea. Not. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at how exactly our crew got there. When they were still near the ground at 450 feet, they aggressively pitched up during their ascent to 8 degrees nose up on the control column, making a pitch angle of 22 degrees with a vertical load of 1.8 Gs. This was so extreme that the stick shaker and stick pusher activated. If you recall from episode 4, the stick pusher was implemented in the control column to push the nose down when entering a stall. At this point, the flight data recorder, or FDR, showed a full nose down on the control column and then the normal climb resumed. Then at 15,000 feet, there was a nose-up maneuver again, 3.8 degrees up on the column and an airplane pitch angle increased to 17 degrees, this time with a load of 2.3 Gs. And then they started using the rudder for some reason. 4.2 degrees left, 6 degrees right, 0.4 degrees left, and then 17 seconds later, 7.7 degrees right. Just insane to me. There's no reason to ever use the rudder. And then they resumed normally. Next, at 24,600 feet, was yet another nose-up maneuver. 
4 degrees up on the column, a pitch angle of more than 10 degrees up, and a vertical load of 1.87 Gs. Investigators found absolutely no reason, either operationally or for safety, for these weird maneuvers, and found that these maneuvers likely exceeded the airplane's certificated flight envelope. Yes. Yeah, great. They could have overstressed the plane. Yeah, so in other words, even if they hadn't crashed the airplane, more than likely this airplane would have had to have been either inspected or it could have been totaled even. Yep. If they determined that the wing spar was cracked or the fuselage was damaged from overstress from these maneuvers, that's so not right. And then at 41,000 feet, about, investigators took a listen to the CVR specifically, and they heard some crazy stuff. It is at this point that I want to directly read from the CVR so you can get an idea of what they heard. Okay. So this recording starts at 9.45 and 16 seconds, at which someone, undetermined who, says, you got that, man. And Nick is playing the captain, and I'm playing the first officer, and Miranda's going to be air traffic control. We're writing the green <laughs> line there. <laughs> Fuck, dude. <laughs> Alpha 2. Is that where we're going? Yeah. What the fuck is this? Is, uh, <laughs> look at the fuck fuel flow, man. Ah, f- dude, they're both almost a thou, almost under a thousand and flying. That's fucking real. <laughs> f- dude. Dude, I've seen this thing eat up like 4,000 pounds an hour. I know it. Laughing, laughing. Ooh, look at that. Under 2,000. So there's something... In a climb. That's f- crazy. Anyway, the green line is 1.2 VS1, so we still have, you know, what, stall something. Oh, no, stall, no, no, no. They couldn't figure out what they said. I think what you have, 1.27, isn't it? Yeah, 127, right here, right, yeah. Some mumble, 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 couple of knots. The red line's where it can stall, so... 390. That is referring to the flight level. Doesn't look much different, though. Still pretty cool. Yeah, I'd have to say that, yeah. Something. Something. (laughs) Sound of clunks. Man, we can do it. 41 it. Baby. (laughs) (laughs) 280 knots still cruising at Mach 0.64. I know, dude. Sorry, I hear sound of laughing. Minute, two minutes to go, someone says. Says two minutes till getting to the 41,000 feet. Mm Mm-hmm. 40,000, baby! Come on! Look at that cabin altitude, man. At this point, a tone is heard in the cockpit that sounds similar to the altitude alert. Yes, so that is... The altitude alert tells the pilots that they're within... A certain range of getting to their cruising altitude. Got it. So when that goes off, that's just saying, hey, you're within, it's either one minute or a thousand feet, depends on well, the airplane. Next line. Thousand to go. Oh. So there you go. It's a thousand feet till getting there. Should be at 8,000 feet moving slowly, going up. Flagship 3701, would you like to go direct Caspar? So that's a, <laughs> that's a waypoint. Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Might as well. And then this is first officer on the radio. Yeah, that'll be great. 3701 direct Casper. All right. Clear direct Casper. Uh, flagship 3701. 
Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 3701 going direct, Casper. You saved us two minutes. And then there was a period of no talking. They were laughing, whistling. Uh, some paper was rustling. I'm saying don't let it get below 170. Uh, we're leveling off here anyways, so... Dang. <laughs> Our arrival fuel is supposed to be 3.5. I can't believe that f man. That's crazy. <laughs> that man. We've saved a ton of f fuel. <laughs> That's what I mean. I'll leave the power up till we get to level off. We're at VT. Take a while for the thing to get started up. There's 4-1, oh my man. We made it, man. Yeah. He's like, high five. <laughs> 5,000 feet complete. 5,000 feet per minute. You can see. <laughs> Flagship 3701, contact Kansas City, 125.67. 2567, you have a good night, 3701. <laughs> this is great. Kansas City Center, good evening, flagship 3701-410. Flagship 3701, Kansas City Center, roger. <laughs> you'll get that you'll do the next one to say 410. Yeah, baby. Son of a clunk. 410, oh, 410. Four, want anything to drink? Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, I'll take a Pepsi. So you go, there's a soda you want it. Clank. Want anything? Hmm? You do want? A Pepsi, if you don't mind. A Pepsi? I thought you said a uh, beer, man. Yeah, I'd like one too. That's <laughs> nothing to joke about. This is recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. Exactly. You could definitely end up getting fired for that. Mm -hmm. Is that a seal on that liquor cabinet? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Series of clicks and thumps. Oh, no. F this is the greatest thing. No way. <laughs> you want a can? You want a cup? We don't have any ice. That's fine. They're cold as f dude. Yeah, that's cool. Accelerating up at all? Sound of click. Similar to a soda can opening, so just think. Yeah. Nah, man. Nothing, dude. It ain't speeding up worth <laughs> Look how high we are. <laughs> they sound high. <laughs> can we talk about it? Yeah. You, they actually seriously. sound like they smoked weed before they yeah, started. Yeah, seriously. This f***ing nose is. Look at how high, nose high we are. I know, that's <laughs> Dude, the f***. Ball is way off, man. Dude, the ball is full off. No f. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well change it up. Look at this ball, dude. It's and then trails off. Then sound of laughing. Flagship thirty seven zero one. Are you a RJ two hundred? Thirty seven zero one. That's affirmative. Forty four hundred. I've never seen you guys up at forty one there. <laughs> yeah, we're actually uh. There's uh we don't we don't have any passengers on board, so we decided to have a little fun and come on up here. I gotcha. This is our actually our service ceiling. Okay now, back to off the radio. Fuck things losing it. <laughs> We're losing here. We're gonna be fucking coming down in a second here, dude. Yeah, they actually cut the expletive out in the story. Yeah. They just wrote it without literally didn't even put in the hashtag, they just wrote it without. This thing ain't gonna fucking hold altitude, is it? It can't, man. We fucking cruised up here, but it won't stay. Yeah, that's funny. We got up here. It won't stay up here. Dude, it's fucking losing it. Yeah. 
And center 3701. Go ahead. Yeah, just as you said, it looks like we're not even going to be able to stay up here. Uh, look for maybe 390 or 37. Flagship 3701, stand by. And then the stick shaker went off. Right then and there. So the airplane stalled. And the rest was history. As one might say. So all the stories just, I mean, just this CVR is just crazy. It, it full out. Am I wrong? It sounds like they're high. Like yeah. off their ass. Yeah. They're like, what's up, dude? Like, I can totally see my brothers doing I was going to say, like you this. use the same voice you do when you're mimicking your brother. Because they sound like this. <laughs> they, they do. When they're, like, super high, this is exactly what they sound like. This is going to have so many bleeps in it. Oh, I'm I, sorry in advance. Yeah. Pinnacle Airlines Standard Operating Procedures said that the proper speed when climbing to such an altitude was 250 knots, or 0.7 Mach. But both CVR and FDR showed that they were only at 203 knots, or 0.63 Mach, at the start of the climb, and leveled off at 163 knots, or 0.57 Mach, in part due to their high rate of climb of 500 feet per minute. They simply could not sustain such a speed and lost 40 knots accordingly. Once they leveled off, they were in a region of reversed command, or, as some might know it, they were on the backside of the power curve. Basically, they didn't have enough available thrust to increase their airspeed to what it should have been. The other reason they lost airspeed was because they had their autopilot set to airspeed mode rather than vertical speed mode. Investigators determined that this is why they were in such a low energy state upon reaching flight level 410. So if they had that on, the vertical speed, would they have been able to get up there and sustain 41,000? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's their fault then. Yep. Like, know how to work your airplane maybe? Yeah. There was also no evidence on the cockpit voice recorder that they looked at the altitude and climb capability charts before their climb so high. Investigators determined that their low airspeed on the climb was clear evidence that they didn't understand the plane's performance at such high altitudes. No kidding. Yeah, seriously. Now, once they were so high and requested a lower altitude, the stick shaker activated for the first time and then four more times, as did the stick pusher. Mm -hmm. And the crew responded by pulling back. Ah! Sorry. <laughs> Broke I'm my eardrums. So sorry. <laughs> Broke my eardrums. Jesus. I'm 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 really sorry. I, I'm gonna have to pull that back when I edit this episode. Oh my gosh! Seriously? They pulled back to the max. They pulled up. Yeah, they pulled the the the, the column, the control column, all the way back. This is why we had the angle of attack, and why you were saying, "Well, if it's pushing over, why are they climbing?" Well, this is. They were I figured it up. was something like that. We have to go up because the blah, blah, blah. No. No, no. No, no, no. When, when you're stalling and you don't have any airspeed, you want to get airspeed, you go down. Nick, do you want to quickly explain a proper procedure for getting out of an aerodynamic stall? Yeah, so typically you nose, the over, the, you, you nose over the airplane until you gain enough airspeed over the wing to recover. And if you don't? Then the airplane continues to stop. And you crash. And you spin. Yep, and you spin. Like they did. I think it's hilarious that, I'm sorry, this is a slight tangent, but I put a stalling thing as a, the tidbit of the month on the newsletter, and I had no idea this episode was about a stall. Oh so. man, this is... There you go. So, that is what happened, and as the plane began to roll, both engines flamed out from lack of airflow, because they weren't going fast enough. Right. Because... Physics. You're up at a really high altitude With where there's damn near no oxygen. No oxygen. And the thing is, is okay, so normally the airplane can maintain 
maintain the engines at an idle level when the airplane's sitting still on the ground, right? Well, but that's because the engines are at idle level and there's plenty of oxygen to suck into the engine when they need to move. Up at high altitude, when the engines are probably at a relatively high throttle setting even, there's no oxygen for it to suck in, and then once you get the airplane going too slow, it just stalls the engine because there's no air for combustion. Yep. Investigators did find a potential reason for why the crew did not do what literally every pilot knows to do in a stall. Pinnacle Airlines had implemented a stall recognition and recovery simulator training, which focused on recovering with minimum loss of altitude. This is a common practice and training in the industry. But this is what the crew may have been trying to do when applying power to restore their energy state and maintain altitude but I have no idea why they did this when they literally had all the altitude to lose. Yes. Literally, they were so high. Just literally lose 1,000 feet. Yeah. And, and so, get your airspeed, or even like 5,000 feet at that point. Yes. You have so much altitude before you hit the ground. Yes, obviously they lost 6,000 feet eventually. But yeah, so the whole thing behind this is that Pinnacle trained this because typically the stalls are happen at low altitudes. Most often, stalls happen at low altitudes. Typically. So the, so the idea is to recover in as little altitude as possible, which in airplanes like the CRJ, they have enough power behind the engines at low altitude. They can do that. Pretty much just power out of a stall. So as long as you nose over just a little bit and you power forward, you can pretty much just climb straight out of there without having to nose over all the way. Well, the stick, the stick pusher was trying to nose over the airplane. They pulled full back because they were trying not to lose altitude, even though they had literally... All of the altitude to lose. And so, in doing so, they were also performing that high power setting recovery attempt. By increasing power to the engines, it requires more oxygen into the inlet, and that wasn't there. Hence, it stalled. Yep. So let's look at that double engine failure. After the flight crew declared an emergency, the CVR showed that they knew they didn't have any engines but they didn't begin the double engine failure checklist for almost a full minute and a half. The first item of which was trained as a memory item. You're supposed to be able to start that checklist by memory. I mean, yeah, I would hope so. But they waited so long. They also didn't achieve and maintain 240 knots, another memory item, which caused the engine cores to decelerate and full stop during the descent. So by having, so that 240 knots that they're supposed to maintain is literally to keep the core of the engine just rotating enough that when they need to restart the engine, it's already moving. Yep. If it stops, there's a good chance that it seizes in place. Which I will get to, like, soon. Okay. On the double engine failure checklist between 13,000 and 21,000 feet, the proper restart or relight procedure is the windmill restart, which requires an 8 degrees nose down pitch attitude to accelerate to 300 plus knots. But the crew didn't descend that steeply and weren't able to achieve such an airspeed, only getting, briefly, to 236 knots. The NTSB concluded that the first officer's limited experience on this plane might have contributed to the failed windmill start, specifically that he was reluctant to pitch down so much. But the captain didn't help him at all with this. Also, they kept switching roles, so... Yeah. There's that, too. If, if the captain didn't think he was going to do it correctly, that's your job to go, hey, it's my airplane, and take over. Right. Literally, CRM, that didn't happen. Yeah. Below 13,000 feet, you are to use the APU to restart the engines, which they tried a total of four times, two times on each engine. 
but they were unable to do so because the engine cores were locked. Quote, without core rotation, recovery from the double engine failure was not possible, end quote. This was not a defect in the engine, technically, as investigators found no mechanical failures in the engine that would prevent core rotation. So why weren't the cores rotating? It turns out that that model of engine, both GECF34-1 and C4, CF34-3, both were known to fail to rotate during in-flight restart procedures when they were being tested in manufacturing at Bombardier, a condition that came to be called core lock. GE attributed core locking to contact interference in the high-pressure turbine of the engine. The air seals in that area control cooling and airflow balance. Bombardier had developed a procedure for screening engines for core lock during flight tests, as well as an in-flight procedure to grind in and remove air seal interference. So when these were getting tested to be put on planes, they would go do an in-flight test. If they locked, they had a process to screen them for the locking, make them not lock, and then screen again and screen again until it didn't lock ever again. Once the engine was screened and treated as such, G and Bombardier confirmed that the engine would not core lock in flight at altitude as long as it maintained an airspeed of 240 knots. And they weren't even close. And the engines had flamed out at high power and at high altitude, creating high thermal distress. The engines that were tested in production were, quote, shut down only after their internal temperatures were stabilized, end quote. Basically, because the accident engines were still hot, the cores remained locked rather than allowing engine restart. So during the double engine failure checklist, the first officer failed to achieve 300 knots despite the captain telling him to do so twice. The captain also didn't call out things with proper language, nor did he verbally confirm each time something was complete. In fact, the trainer who trained the captain in upgrade training said that he, quote, did not always perform checklists according to company procedures. Oh my gosh. End quote. <sighs> then why is he flying? Why is he a captain? <laughs> they needed the pilot, I guess. Poor execution of checklists and not ensuring the 300 knots was a failure of both CRM and basic airmanship. Yep. According to investigators. Yeah, that's what they said. At 10.06, air traffic control asked if the crew wanted to land, but the captain said to stand by while they tried to restart the engine. Just the engine. Again, bad verbiage. Both your engines are out. Three minutes later at 10.09, the first officer then informed the controller of the double engine failure. Why is this a problem? Because it was 14 minutes since both engines were lost. They waited for 14 minutes. They wasted valuable time that could have been used to alert controllers of the true nature of the emergency, as well as figure out better descent and landing options since they were gliding, not flying. Right. They were only at 10,000 feet at that point, leaving them with one usable airport rather than the five airports that would have been usable if they had told the controller when they lost both engines. Yeah. So 14 minutes earlier, they would have had so many more options had they told. And that's what they found in the investigation is that there were options. Five airports. There were options, and if they had said something, they most likely would have landed that airplane. Yeah, I don't even think this crew should have been flying. They obviously, first of all, basically taking the plane for a joyride, not great. If they would have landed it and survived, they would have lost their jobs. Guaranteed. They should have, because they are taking an airplane for a joyride. Yes. That is, and they're, like, joking about drinking on the job and stuff. That's not okay. 
Right. This this is not going for a joyride in your dad's car, okay? This is an aircraft that you're very dang lucky that no one else was on it. <laughs> yeah. And that you didn't hit anybody on the ground. Yeah. And if you had done everything correctly, even up to the point where they lo- were losing lift, right? If you had done all the correct steps to recover that airplane, telling air traffic control what the problem was, you probably... If even if you couldn't have landed at an airport, you could have, have found a space mm-hmm. to land where you didn't crash into stuff. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. I'm Shall angry. we break? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So we'll jump into some findings here, and I definitely am skipping some of these, but we are doing some. The NTSB found that the captain and the first officer were properly certified and qualified under federal regulations. No evidence indicated any medical or behavioral conditions that might have adversely affected their performance during the accident flight. Flight crew fatigue and hypoxia were not factors in this accident. So they were not high. Right. So Listen. I, I Maybe s- they were high on life. I specifically left this one in, which I would normally skip right over this one on almost any other accident. But this It's crazy to me that it was like, they were certified. Really? They didn't seem certified to me. They were certified. This is and like a key reason why you have to have 1,500 hours before you can become a commercial pilot. That is a big part of why nowadays. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But mind you, I mean, the captain had 6,900 hours. He had he had. And some he was just as him. bad as the first officer. Right. Let's yeah, but see. the first officer was 23 with yeah. like definitely. a little over 700 hours. Yeah. yeah. And definitely acting like a frat boy. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Acting like a 23-year-old male. That's what he was acting like. Right. Oh, boy. The accident was not survivable. No. Nah, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, it's a good thing no one else was on board. Okay, so let's jump into the fun parts. They find that the pilot's aggressive pitch-up and yaw maneuvers during the ascent and their decision to operate the airplane at maximum operating altitude of 41,000 feet were made for personal and not operational reasons. Yeah. They were doing this for no other reason than just to do it for fun. I would also like to emphasize at this point, so where we started reading the CVR is where the CVR started. They did not have CVR for the ascent portion of that flight. Right. And the biggest reason why it was written into the story so much, and I know that frustrated you, is because the FDR actually cut out partway through. When they lost AC power, no FDR. Ah. So the only thing they had to go on for a whole portion of the story was the CVR. That's interesting that the CVR had power, but the FDR didn't. They were on two different power sources. One was DC power, the other one was AC power. Ah, I see. They lost AC power. Different bus. Yes, different bus altogether. Honestly, for the purposes of this episode, I'm kind of glad the CVR stayed. Yes. (laughs) Because actually it was way more foretelling. Yes, it was definitely more telling of what happened than the FDR ever was. The FDR just shows how dramatic the, the actual incident was. But the CVR shows why. Yeah. That's for sure. Also, I'm kind of concerned that there wasn't any CVR until the point it started. Well, that was half an hour. 
Oh, was this the point where they, it was re-recording after every 30 yeah, minutes? Yeah, so where we stopped was at 9.54. I stopped there because that's what was useful. The CBR ends at 10.15, and it started at 9.45. Okay, so it re-recorded. This is at the point where it would re-record over It everything. only records half an hour. Yeah. Right. Which is why they didn't have it for the start of yes, the ascent. Exactly. And that's why you might have noticed in my story, we kind of skipped through all the ascent, the weird things that happened, and then suddenly there started being voices and things happening close to 41,000 feet. And that's because that's when it started. started. The CVR is available both at the end of the NTSB report as well as on an external link Mm -hmm. somewhere. Just look it up. They found that the flight crew's inappropriate use of the vertical speed mode during the climb was a misuse of automation that allowed the airplane to reach 41,000 feet in a critically low energy state. That's pretty key because that is the whole reason this really happened. It isn't just that they wanted to go to 41,000 feet. It's that they got there using improper methods. The airplane can operate at 41,000 feet if you get it there with enough speed. They got it there way too slow because they were using the wrong mode on the autopilot to maintain their climb and their speed that they got there slow and the airplane eventually just couldn't maintain and it fell. Yeah. It blows my mind that they had to crash this year. You know, I this is something I didn't... I, I thought about even saying it all, but it blows my mind that from 41,000 feet over middle of America, they couldn't manage to land this airplane anywhere. Right? 41,000 feet is an enormous amount of distance to have to travel. They had so much time to glide. They had so much glide. altitude. They had so much time to glide. I can't believe they... Oh. If they had told the air traffic controller that they had a dual engine failure when they did, they found that the improper airspeed during the climb demonstrated that the pilots did not understand how airspeed affects airplane performance and did not realize that the importance of conducting the climb according to the published climb capability charts. They had referred to the charts and done any sort of planning on getting to 41,000 feet. Absolutely none. And just having that understanding of the airplane's losing speed as you climb, and if you're going to operate it at its max altitude, you need as much as you can get. Because that airplane isn't going to keep operating at that altitude. Which doesn't surprise me for the first officer, given how little experience he has, but for the captain? Exactly. Bruh. I'm telling you, it's a conspiracy. They were high. (laughs) It's a (laughs) cover-up. Both of them. We're not getting into this. <laughs> both of them, by the way, trained in Florida. Both of them were pretty trained pilots. The captain went to Embry Riddle in Florida. Florida man. And why the other do I one, know that name? Embry Riddle, mm-hmm. because it's the biggest aviation university in the world. There's one in Arizona and one in. Florida. I know. I know of the one in Arizona because we have a friend who went there. He went to both. Oh, maybe yes. that's why. And the other pilot learned at Gulfstream Academy. And then both of them operated for Gulfstream, actually, for a little, a short period of time before being hired at Pinnacle. They found that the upset event exposed both engines to inlet airflow disruption conditions that led to engine stalls and a complete loss of engine power. So the engines failed. We know that. They found that the pilot's lack of exposure to high-altitude stall recovery techniques contributed to their inappropriate flight control inputs during the upset event. Just fall. Just, just... Yes. And they were following now. So to give them a small benefit of the doubt, they were following the training that the airline had given them. The airline had never trained them to recover a CRJ 200 at a high altitude. Okay. 
But when you learn to fly in general aviation, yes. you learn to put the nose down. Nose over, recover the airplane. Now, I understand that they were trained to maintain altitude, but they had zero reason to do so? Right. If they were at like 24,000 feet... I get it a little bit I more. I get a little bit more. Even if they were at, I would say, in the, the lower 30s, because that's where most airliners operate, and there you don't want to lose much altitude either, because there could be conflicting traffic in your area. If you're on an airway, then there's more than likely other traffic on that same airway, and if they're operating in the opposite direction, they're possibly only a thousand below you. So that's why I understand even at that altitude doing a minimal loss of altitude recovery. But up at 41,000 feet, are you kidding me? You 41'd it. Yeah. You got there. Now you need to make sure you actually fly the airplane. Which is always the first rule. Yes. And if you feel like we're being tough on the pilots, I was going to save this for the end, but okay. The NTSB was really, really tough on them too. Because this was terrible. Ridiculous. Yes. And I understand like, if you think we're being harsh, but so was the NTSB. And as a matter of fact, this story went so far as being so ridiculous that these two pilots earned themselves in the number four Darwin Award book, by the way. What is it? Book number four, the Darwin Awards. Can you explain what that is? The Darwin Awards are a very famous set of awards for the stupidest people on Earth. Oh, People that do something that's so egregious, it it, it gets them in trouble, it kills them, something or other, and most humans can't even imagine putting themselves in that situation. It's usually where all of, like, those really stupid robbery, you know, really robbery gone wrong stories end up. It's where... People who build themselves a rocket and want to shoot themselves into space and end up dying in the process end up. Those kinds of things. Like, duh. I I don't think, to be fair, you need to be hard on these pilots because they were supposed to be trained. Yes. FAA certifi- certified trained. Yes. They should have known when I get into a stall, I push the nose down. You don't fight the airplane at that point. If the airplane is trying to... F- it, Fun fact, the airplane is trying to save itself. Yes. Okay, That's why they do that, because pilots were doing the wrong thing, right? right. So it goes, okay, well, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to try to save myself. Almost every time we talk about a stall on this podcast, the pilots do the incorrect thing, and they pull it back mm-hmm. instead of pulling it forward. Mm-hmm. Now, it's partly because... Instinctive. Instinct, right? You want to go up, not down. That's why the training has to be there. And it says they had proper training. Yep. Even with the way they were trained, it they didn't. They kept pulling back. Mm-hmm. Which I think even in the minimum altitude loss, they're still supposed to dip a little bit down and just go full on the thrust. Yes, basically. And they still didn't do that. They pulled up. Right. And I'm sorry. That's just when a when an elementary school music teacher knows that's not what <laughs> you're supposed to do. You, as a certified commercial pilot, should know how to do that. Yeah. That's the problem. Also, flying up to a random flight level because you want to and not having a reason for it and not planning it out in advance. Right. Is dumb, which is how they got the Darwin Awards, which 
is defined in Wikipedia as a tongue-in-cheek honor originating in Usenet newsgroup discussions around 1985. They recognize individuals who have supposedly contributed to human evolution by selecting themselves out of the gene pool <laughs> from dying or becoming sterilized via their own actions. Oh my god. Yes. So, and this is all a play on Charles Darwin and Charles Darwin of course, was survival the one of the fittest. Who, yes, who yeah. wrote all about evolution. survival of the fittest yeah, yeah, yeah. and evolution. So this is all playing on these people weeded them on themselves out because of survival of the fittest. They were not the fittest. They pulled a stupid. Yeah. And this isn't to make light necessarily of what they did because this was still a learning thing for the FAA. We'll get to all that as we always do in a little bit once we get through the findings. But, but still, this is just pointing out. I mean, professionalism needs to exist. And is supposed to be there, even if you're not being watched. Just for the love of, just do your job and do it right. Yeah, I, acting like for your own safety. Kids. Yeah, for your own safety, especially when you're operating heavy machinery. Just do the thing. They found that the captain did not take the necessary steps to ensure that the first officer achieved the 300 knot or greater airspeed required for the windmill engine restart procedure, and then did not demonstrate command authority by taking control of the airplane and accelerating it to at least 300 knots so again the captain exactly what i said the captain at no point in time actually paid attention to if they got to 300 knots or not he didn't make the first officer do it and he didn't do it himself also so that's like his job as pilot monitoring and that's his job if you're following the procedures and that's the step that needs to be taken in order to go to the next step how are you not finishing that step not paying attention and not getting to 300 knots. That's why the windmill start procedure never worked. No, duh. Because you never follow the procedure, technically. You you skipped a whole step. The most important one, which was keeping the air, the airflow through the engine to maintain its rotation. They found that the first officer's limited experience in the airplane might have contributed to the failed windmill restart attempt because he might have been reluctant to command the degree of nose-down attitude that was required to increase the airplane's airspeed to 300 knots. I think, that was, said. I think yeah. that was just lack of training. I don't think that was... Lack of training and Lack of experience. He yeah. was young. He didn't have very that, many hours. That would be scary, you know, tipping a nose over well, to especially, go down. Well, especially, you know... Especially when you're that young and you don't have very many hours operating an airplane that suddenly flies that fast and that high, is it's a really hard thing to get used to for a while. And he was so new to it that he probably was really reluctant. I mean, in a Cessna, okay, you're not moving very fast. You know, these maneuvers, you only lose like 100 feet, whatever. In a CRJ, you you put the nose over just a couple of degrees, you lose 2,000 feet real quick. And that's scary. That's a scary sensation. The airplane's moving much faster than your mind is, and that is why he's probably reluctant. He wasn't trained for that feel. What that feels like to put the airplane into an eight degrees nose down, heavy dive to speed the airplane up. And that's when the captain was supposed to step in and be able to do that if the if the first officer couldn't, and he didn't. Right. So. They found that despite their four auxiliary power unit-assisted engine restart attempts, the pilots were unable to restart the engines because their cores had locked. Without core rotation, recovery from the double engine failure was not possible, no matter what they did. They found that the General Electric CF-34-1 and CF-34-3 engines had a history of failing to rotate during in-flight restart attempts on airplanes undergoing production acceptance testing at Bombardier. There's that whole thing about it didn't even work at Bombardier. It was a known thing. 
That's why they wrote the procedures the way they did. They found that both engines experienced core lock because of the flame out from high power and high altitude, which resulted from the pilot-induced extreme conditions to which the engines were exposed, and the pilot's failure to achieve and maintain the target airspeed of 240 knots, which caused the engine cores to stop rotating. Both of these factors were causal to the accident. These engines would not have done that if they hadn't done what they did. Right. Just to be clear, the engines themselves were perfectly safe. Yeah. Exactly. It was the situation that they put the engines in that caused it to cease like that. Yes. They found that the importance of maintaining a minimum airspeed to keep the engine cores rotating was not communicated to the pilots in airplane flight manuals. So it wasn't even in the manuals for the airplane that this was a key critical thing. It was in the procedure for the windmill start that they needed to be at a certain airspeed, but it wasn't communicated why, and it wasn't communicated how important that was. That's a, so a company it, problem, yeah. Sort of, yes. That's partially in the manufacture of the airplane, too, because they didn't write it in there as a critical thing. So then it wasn't trained on and written into the company procedures. Yeah. Like, it, it it's an arbitrary number until you put meaning to it. Right. Why does it have to be at this airspeed? Well, if you're not at this airspeed, you're going to lock the engines up, and they won't turn back on. Right. They found that the captain's previous difficulties in checklist management, the situational stress, and the lack of simulator training involving a double-engine failure contributed to the flight crew's errors in performance in performing the double-engine failure checklist. So, it's his whole... He wasn't following checklist properly, and he didn't previously. They knew that. Yeah. That was that skipping that whole step about 300 knots. They found that the pilot's failure to prepare for an emergency landing in a timely manner, including communicating with air traffic controllers immediately after the emergency about the loss of both engines and the availability of landing sites, was a result of their intentional non-compliance with standard operating procedures, and this failure was causal to the accident. There's a big one. The NTSB was like, this was throwing some serious shade at the pilots in this case. Some throwing some pew-pews. Some pew-pew. They were saying that... They intentionally did not call an emergency of both in, of a dual engine failure when for they should have. fifteen minutes. Right. Okay. So this one really bothered me a lot. Okay, because the not only did the pilots intentionally go to the altitude they did and do all these things incorrectly, they then pretty egregiously with intent. The captain said twice. We're going to try to start our other engine, leading the air traffic controller to think that they had one engine operating still. Right. And he didn't make the effort to correct him because he was afraid of getting in trouble. Who? The, the first captain officer? was. No, the captain was. The first officer is the only one that actually told the air traffic controller they had a dual engine failure. And he didn't do it until 14 minutes after they lost engine power. Yeah, but the captain's the one who said. The that... captain's the one that said they were going to try to start the other engine. And he twice. didn't correct himself because he'd get in trouble? He didn't correct himself. He intentionally did it. He did it twice. He did it once. The air traffic controller then said, copy, uh, operating as a single engine airplane right now. He didn't correct the air traffic controller when he said that. And then he proceeded to once again say, we're going to stand by. We're going to try to start the other engine. So th the captain was very intentionally saying and portraying to the air traffic controller that they were operating on one engine. That they didn't have a dual engine failure. Which, that wasn't called out in here anywhere, and that really, really bothered me, because that is egregious. That is just... Okay, listen. You are in a serious situation right now. Your engines aren't starting. The things you keep trying to do aren't right. working. Getting in trouble should not be anywhere near the top of the list right now. Right. You are in 
absolute danger right. <laughs> of crashing the airplane and dying. Right. So what you should be doing is making sure there are every way possible for you to survive. Right. You're like two men stranded on an island with a massive hurricane approaching, threatening the island. There's a boat nearby and you have a flare gun and you choose not to use it. It's one of those things where would you have, if they had landed, would they have gotten in trouble? Probably. And probably big enough trouble that they might have gotten fired. Mm -hmm. But you're alive. Right. It's better than dying. Yep. They found that the pilot's unprofessional operation of the flight was intentional and causal to this accident because the pilot's actions led directly to the upset and their improper reaction to the resulting in-flight emergency exacerbated the situation to the point that they were unable to recover the airplane. There it is. The NTSB places wholly on the pilots the responsibility and the cause of this accident. Absolutely. And they are pointed about it. They should be. It's their fault. Yes. I've never heard the NTSB so pointed. Going at the pilots. You know, normally they'll... Directly at the pilots. Normally they'll say, okay, it was the pilots plus this plus this. These factors all led to the accident. Which the pilots could have done these things better, but they handled these situations okay. We've had a lot of those. This one was like pilots. 100%. The pilots. Well, if they hadn't tried to be part of the 41 Club. And 410, specifically. Yes, 410. Because <laughs> it's flight level 410. And to be clear, it's very rare that we have an accident, too, where the NTSB can place blame on solely one thing. Normally, there's a series of things that go wrong. A breakdown in communication, you know, the... Something goes wrong with the airplane, loss of situational awareness, those kinds of things. This was just an egregious pilot intentional misconduct. Finally, they found that because most training for stalls occurs with the airplane at low altitudes, the training methods may introduce a bias in stall recovery techniques by encouraging pilots to minimize altitude loss and not fully recognize other available recovery techniques. This is where they give only one benefit of the doubt through the entire findings, because there's a bunch I skip over, but they basically restate a lot of this stuff, and it's more like they recommend things within the findings, which I don't like. But they, they're they saying that, okay, they weren't trained to do a stall recovery properly. That doesn't mean they shouldn't know how to recover this airplane, and they shouldn't have been able to do it, which eventually they sort of did, but they did it wrong. And <laughs> They sort of did, but, but they, they did it wrong. <laughs> yeah, they did it wrong. And they blame some of that on the training that was given to them, That it was only that minimal altitude loss, low altitude stall recovery. But I'm still at the point where you have two people sitting here who have never flown a plane in their life. And they know how to recover from a stall. That's Mm -hmm. my problem. It is such a fundamental, basic ability that you learn in like your first 50 hours of flying a plane. Oh, yeah. Brendan's working on it right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned stall recovery at hour 10. I, I just... Is it a? Can you attribute it a little bit to training? Sure. Go with the fact that they're mostly trained on minimal altitude loss. loss. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is the pilot should know. They should know. I have all this altitude. I should use the altitude I have. Recover the airplane. To recover, so that we don't die. And if they had recovered properly, they actually probably would have gotten to the needed airspeed as well, and they never would have stalled the engines to the point of a lockup. Yeah. Okay. 
the probable cause, which is not short. No, it's not. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of this accident were, one, the pilot's unprofessional behavior, deviation from standard operating procedures, and poor airmanship, which resulted in an in-flight emergency from which they were unable to recover, in part because of the pilot's inadequate training. Two, the pilot's failure to prepare for an emergency landing in a timely manner, including communicating with air traffic controllers immediately after the emergency about the loss of both engines and the availability of landing sites. And three, the pilot's improper management of the double engine failure checklist, which allowed the engine course to stop rotating and resulted in the core lock engine condition. Contributing to this accident were one, the core lock engine condition, which prevented at least one engine from being restarted and two, the airplane flight manuals that did not communicate to pilots the importance of maintaining a minimum airspeed to keep the engine cores rotating. So again, they placed a small amount of, like, these contributed, but they were not... Causal. Causal. The causals were the pilots. And it is unfortunate. On any given day when they're operating with passengers, these two pilots were probably good pilots. They just had to take a repositioning flight. That's all. And act like... 15 year olds and and this the thing about this is is that it's not like they didn't know how to operate this airplane they just chose not to do it normally because there weren't passengers basically it's that the boss is the way it's time to play thing so and here's the thing would i have cared as much for them to do that if they had planned everything out properly probably not you want to go up to 41,000 feet? Look at the capability charts. Look but, at the capability charts. Make a plan. Don't just do it because you get on the plane and decide to do it. But if at the very least they had done that with some planning and they had avoided all the stick shaker activations, the heavy G loads, the rudder use, the getting up to get a soda, switching responsibilities, switching seats, then this probably would have been a non-incident. This has probably happened several times, and people don't even know, because if it's planned, then it can be done correctly. And, and responsibly. In which, and in which case, it's not even against necessarily company procedures in any way whatsoever. But totally you can't just wing it. Yeah, but you can't just... Ha. Yeah. Pun. Good pun. But, you, but you, can't, you can't treat the airplane like a toy. No. This is a big piece of heavy machinery that operates at high altitudes and high speeds. So let's go through some recommendations. Cool. So I narrowed these down a lot, and I've also shortened them, because, again, they're they're nice and wordy, the NTSB. And a lot of these come down to very basic things. So they recommended enhancing the training for high-altitude operations. So Great. enhancing yeah. training on how, say, a CRJ-200 operates at 41,000 feet. And Not knowing, just getting there, but how it operates at that altitude. Knowing so you, the power curve and making sure you're on the correct side of it. Right. So you're not behind that curve, and then all of a sudden you don't have enough speed getting up there, you won't maintain, and then you lose engines, and it falls. They recommended training high-altitude stall recovery. So recovering literally from a stall at high altitude versus the low-altitude, minimal-altitude loss training that they did provide to Pinnacle. They recommended training on dual engine failure checklists in simulators, as well as to train on speeds related to that on the CRJ-200, for example. So this one's pretty pretty key, actually, because what they found was that the airline hadn't really spent any time with them on dual engine failures in simulators. That meant that these pilots were not... While they had done some training, they hadn't done enough 
to commit this to memory and to make sure that they were following speeds and procedures correctly. They were skipping steps and kind of to be fair, forgetting about it. This was before the miracle over the Hudson happened, which was in 2009, right? That sounds right. Yeah. So dual engine failures were not very common. They're still not common. Mm-mm. But you, it's what we always say. You should always train because in case you get to a point where you have a dual engine failure, you're able to fly the airplane. Yeah. And you're able to get it to land. Yeah. Right? Because on the opposite side of the spectrum, UA-232 lost all three engines. Yeah. And... Well, all three hydraulics. Well, yeah. But they had a problem. They couldn't control the airplane. Right. So they did the correct thing, you know, and tried to manipulate it. Yeah. And they flew the plane. And did it turn out the best way it could have? No. But people survived. It turned out better than they could ever simulate it. So actually, it turned out basically the best possible. (laughs) Um. And that's that has a lot to do with CRM as well, crew resource management, which and obviously in this there accident, was none, there Zero. literally was non-existent. Zilch. Mm-hmm. Nah. Goodbye. Yep. They recommended requiring regional carriers to have specific guidance on professional conduct to pilots who operate non-revenue flights. Ah. This one's this one's ah. big. <laughs> that was really the real point of reading the CVR to you guys was to show the sheer level of unprofessionalism in that cockpit. Right. They sounded so, actually high, friends. Right. So I understand that they weren't within the sterile cockpit rules where they were. That didn't matter. You they still should lost, be... You're professionals. Right. They lost all professionalism, and therefore they lost the situation. They were behind the situation before they ever got in it. I do also want to emphasize now, thinking back on it, we did a lot of laughing during that CVR. Most of that's written in. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. That, actually, I, a I lot would of laugh the laughing. at Christy doing the laughing sound. But the laughing sound was actually written into the CVR. Yeah. There was like a lot of giggling, a lot of joking around. When they're actually getting themselves in a pretty serious situation and not paying attention to their instruments, not paying attention to what was going on with the airplane, and got themselves in a dangerous situation. Yeah. Again, I highly highly recommend reading the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder. It is the second appendix of the report. Yeah. They recommended reviewing... The FDR data from non-revenue flights to ensure that flights are being properly conducted. They recommended this to the FAA and to the airlines, actually. They said, basically, after a non-revenue flight happens, review that FDR data to tell the real story of what that airplane did during that non-revenue flight so that you get a picture of what those pilots did. Because it's the only way you can really look into what those pilots were doing when the boss was away. The boss being the passengers, in this case, or any other there's crew no members. There's no flight crew. Or, or, yeah. Right. There's no, there's no cabin crew. Or cabin crew, not flight crew. No cabin, flight crew. No cabin <laughs> crew. No, I really hope there's flight crew, Miranda. Yeah. No, it's no, a Tesla airplane. It flies itself. Yeah. No cabin crew and no jump seaters or anything. They're alone. They're alone. It was at night. It was supposed to be a quiet flight. That's so, the real test they did whatever they right so they're saying basically test those pilots by checking the fdr data after those flights of non-revenue operations you want to know how your pilots act in the cockpit by themselves check 
while they do a flight that has no passengers on it. Right. And the previous recommendation was saying to give specific guidance on how to be professional and handle airplanes professionally, have that education, train them. Uh, even at the regional carriers, when they're doing non-revenue flights, it doesn't matter if there's passengers there or not. You have a standard to uphold. The recommended training slash education on professionalism for pilots using recent accidents. So they recommend not only training and educating these pilots on professionalism, period, but using recent accidents, like this one, of unprofessionalism to exemplify why it's so important. You can lose your life over just not being professional in a cockpit. Even though you're up at 41,000 feet, I have so much time to recover, and I could get so much speed, and even if I lose the engines, ah, I'd be fine. Obviously not. The recommended oversight and periodic line operation checks. So this requ- this basically recommends doing actual in-person line checks and audits of these pilots. Like, surprise! Here's a an auditor going to ride with you today, or check you on the ground, make sure you're in good shape to go fly. The recommender requiring all Part 121 operators to establish safety management system programs as well as other safety programs. So this one was actually tied in. This was quite a few different recommendations they had given, but basically setting up these actual programs with the regional carriers in mind. They wanted these regional carriers to work together to start these management, these safety management programs that would help learn, audit, and train based on findings what how to better handle safety in these airplanes and to better help these flight crew just be better pilots and more professional and they recommended retesting minimum airspeed requirements for engine restarts at altitude so they were saying there wasn't enough emphasis on the speeds throughout the airplane's manuals, the airline's manuals, those kinds of things, for keeping those engines from locking up the well, core lock. And giving a reason why you need to keep those speeds up. Right. And so what they determined was that there needed to be more testing on this core lock and give a very clear speed and reason why. But they wanted there to be more testing behind that to prove that the engine can always restart at this speed or above and making that clear. One more of these. They recommended mitigating core lock effects and to test and train core lock problems. So uh, this one's kind of a little more vague, but they basically wanted to find ways to mitigate core locking and make it easier for these engines to restart in almost given any given situation and to test those and to train on that just to make sure that, you know, this is a well-known thing, basically. So... That's saying that if the core lock problem hadn't existed, yes, sure, this accident probably would have been avoidable. And it still doesn't really take away the fact that the pilots were so unprofessional, because the information was still there. Maintain this speed or above in order to do this procedure. And they just didn't do that. Yeah. Oh boy, friends, that was a lot. You're welcome for the extra long episode this week. It's going to be a long episode. It is. Yep. <laughs> and this one was recommended by two different people, so... Clearly, they Congrats, you made Miranda mad. It was definitely... Oh my gosh. I, this one... I can't even get over the stupidity. I, this one ranks up there. I mean, right from the get-go, as soon as they took off, they performed a maneuver wow. they never should have. It's like doing a wheelie on your bike the moment you get into it. <laughs> they almost stalled the airplane just 400 feet off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, you screwed. Yeah. You did. 
<laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I mean, it, it's... Yes, this one is definitely ranks up there. U.S. Bangla, I think, marginally still worse. Yeah. Marginally still worse marginally, than this one. Marginally, yeah. That one, I still can't believe they're like... There's the the runway. Let's go. <laughs> just, yeah. We're just going to make it anyways. We have a perfectly operational airplane and we're going to attempt to land this anyways. Oh, in this port they, also, they also weren't calling their colleagues whores. Right. There was that too. Uh, yeah. No. F*** dude. They were that. Uh, they did yeah, do that no. though. Hey dude. What's up dude? <laughs> hey. Yeah man. What's up dude? <laughs> That's what I picture. You guys can't see me, but I'm like doing the thing, you know? Stoners do, dude. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, jeez. All right. That was Pinnacle Airlines Flight 3701. Yep. As always, thank you all for listening and supporting us. So we're going to talk a little bit, probably a little bit more about it in the post episode. So if you want to check that out, you can go to Patreon. Uh, $5, which is economy, I believe. Right? No, yes. business. Is it business? Economy is the $2. Oh, you're right. It's business class. Get Thanks. yourself in business class. <laughs> Get yourself a business class seat. <laughs> Sorry. Remember to <laughs> send us your listener stories for your first aviation experience, whether that be, you know, your first time on an airplane, first time on a trip, first time in a cockpit, first time whatever. Any of those work. Jumping Anything. out of an airplane. Anything first in aviation. So that's for January. And then also make sure you send us your listener questions and check out the newsletter. Um, remember, subscribing to the newsletter is free. So thanks, friends. We hope you have a wonderful New Year because I believe this co- yeah this comes out the week of New Year's. So have a great New Year. And we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.